This is The Big Question, where we do our best to answer questions from young disciples at Grace Presbyterian Church and to be at peace with the mysteries that we can't explain. I'm Pastor Mark, your host, and in this episode, we have questions from Emmeline, Amara, Caleb, Lydia, and Levi. First, we'll tackle a few serious questions, then we'll look at this episode's big question. And as always, we'll wrap things up at the end with a few fun questions. We have some great questions this week. We'll start off with a few serious questions. Today, we have serious questions from Emmeline and from Amara. First, here's Emmeline's question. What were the medium-aged people doing in Zechariah 8, verses 1 through 8? Well, to refresh everyone's memory, Zechariah 8, verses 4 and 5, reads this way. Thus says the Lord of hosts, Old men and old women shall again sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with staff in hand because of great age. And the streets of the city shall be full of boys and girls playing in its streets. Now that verse is part of a promise that God is making about saving his people and building them into a faithful city. So as part of the promise, God gives us a picture of old people sitting in the streets and children playing. And that picture is a symbol. It represents peace and security. God is saying that in the new world that I'm creating, in the new Jerusalem, as I save my people, I am creating a place of safety and security where human beings can flourish, where they can be what they were made to be. So, that peace and security of God's promise is kind of illustrated in this image of old people with their staffs sitting in the streets and children playing in the streets as well. Now, the reason why the medium-aged people, as Emmeline calls them, aren't mentioned is that the old and the young are the most vulnerable. Like for them to be in the streets, that's a sign of how safe and secure this city is. So the people who aren't old yet and and aren't young anymore, the people who are in the middle, where do they fit into this picture? Well, I think what the medium-aged people are doing here is they're seeing. They're the ones who are witnessing the happiness of the most vulnerable people. And so, in a sense, their job in this vision is to witness, to see how God has kept his promise in the evidence of the old people and the young people gathering together in the streets. So that's what I think the middle-aged or medium-aged people are doing in Zechariah 8, Emmeline. I think they are seeing the vision or witnessing what God has done. And now here's Amara's question. Amara asks, how does the head of the church figure out what songs to sing on Sunday? Now, Amara, I always love questions about how we plan and conduct our worship services because worship is at the heart of everything that we do as a church. The most important thing in the life of our church is when we come together on the Lord's Day and we worship God. 
Now, every part of our worship is something that God has commanded us to do. God doesn't just tell us, worship me. He also tells us how to worship him. He gives us all the pieces in the puzzle, so to speak. Now, one of the things the Bible instructs us to do in worship is to sing praise to God. And when you think about that, when you think about the singing that we do, the best way to understand the purpose of singing in worship is to think of it as prayer sung aloud. So when we choose songs for worship, we always have that idea in mind, the idea that the songs we sing are the sung prayer of the people of God, of the worshipers. So we want to sing songs that focus our attention on God. We want to sing songs that give us words to glorify him and express our hearts, sometimes in ways that we couldn't put into words ourselves. Now, as the pastor, I direct the selection process in the overall sense. But the people to thank are really our musicians. They don't just play and sing during worship services. They also reflect on the lyrics and they think about what songs will fit best in each service. And that's something we should really be grateful for, the effort that they make. At the end of the day, too, I think this is one of those areas where we really see the work of the Holy Spirit, because each week there are these connections between our songs and the rest of our worship that we never even realized. Everything fits together, even when it's not the result of human planning. We put a lot of effort into our worship services. We do a lot of planning, but oftentimes the most profound connections are ones that, that we discover rather than planning because it's God working in those elements. So that in a nutshell is how we choose music for worship. And now it's time for the big question. This week's big question comes from Caleb, who asks, why are all four Gospels in the Bible instead of just one Gospel? When you look at the Bible, the sweep of the 66 books that make up Scripture, each book is magnificent and important in its own right. But the four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they occupy a special place because they're eyewitness accounts of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus. For people who've never read the Bible before, the Gospels are the perfect place to start. John's Gospel, in particular, is often recommended to seekers and to new believers. It is true, when you think about it, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all tell basically the same story. So at first, you might think there's a little bit of redundancy, which I think is what Caleb's question is really getting to. Why four Gospels instead of just one? What's the point of having four, all this duplication? Now, here's the interesting thing. There's actually another set of books in the Bible that do the same thing. First and Second Kings and First and Second Chronicles both recount basically the same history of the kings of Israel. You might ask yourself, why? Why the duplication? Well, what's interesting is that in Kings and Chronicles, we get the story 
uh, roughly the same, uh, but with different details and with different perspectives. So the same historical events, but in the different books, we see them differently. And so as a result, we understand them better because we have more angles to look at them from. Now, that's what happens in the Gospels, too, which is interesting because the story of Jesus is the history of the king, even more so than those Old Testament histories. So it shouldn't be surprising that we have a similar duplication, a similar kind of providing of different perspectives. If you look at the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all chronological narratives. What that means is they begin at the beginning, they tell the story in more or less the same order. They don't all include the same events, uh, but a lot of the events are repeated. Even so, when you compare them, you'll, you'll find different details and different perspectives, and that helps give you a deeper understanding of the meaning of these events in the life of Jesus. Now, the Gospel of John is different from the other three in that it's organized not chronologically, but thematically. And what that means is that the events that are recounted in the book, they're grouped together because of their connections, not necessarily because of the order that they happened in. There is a lot of overlap. There are things in John's Gospel that happen in the order that they happened in in history. But sometimes John will group them differently for emphasis because he's just got a different goal, different style. In fact, getting four different accounts of the history of Jesus is helpful in a lot of different ways. I think, uh, first of all, it emphasizes that these are eyewitness testimonies. I mean, anytime something important happens, you always ask everybody who saw it what it was that they experienced. And the coming of Jesus is literally the most important thing that's ever happened in human history. And so here we get to ask multiple eyewitnesses what happened and what it meant. Now, second, I think there's another reason why having multiple Gospels is really an advantage, because the four Gospels were written with different goals in mind. And so they don't just give us different details, but they can have different objectives in mind. So Matthew, for example, he puts a big emphasis on the ways in which Jesus fulfills Old Testament prophecy, really emphasizes the kingship of Jesus, that Jesus is the king who was promised in the Old Testament. In Mark's gospel, the picture that emerges of Jesus really focuses on his servanthood, the way that he is a shepherd servant. If you look in Luke's gospel, there's uh, emphasis placed on the humanity of Jesus, whereas John's gospel places a focus on Jesus's divinity. So taken together, the four gospels actually give us a very full and rich picture of who Jesus is. I think the reason that God gives us four gospel accounts, and not just one, is to give us a strong assurance that Jesus is our Lord and Savior, and that he is the complete fulfillment of all of God's promises. But really, when you think about it, there is only one gospel. That's the gospel of Jesus Christ. But by giving us four accounts of that one gospel, of Jesus's work, we can really appreciate 
the full depth of the good news. So that's why there are four Gospels in Scripture instead of just one. Before we finish up this week, let's take a couple of fun questions from Lydia and Levi. Lydia's dad preached at Grace recently, and that got her thinking about preaching. Here's her question. Do you like preaching? Are you going to be sad when my dad preaches? Well, Lydia, yes, I love preaching. The Word of God is so rich and wonderful and full of mystery that I love discovering what's there and also helping other people discover it too. But here's the thing. The Bible is much bigger, uh, much deeper than any one person. And that's why God calls so many different people to preach the Bible and to teach it and to proclaim it, including your dad. So when your dad preaches, I'm not sad that I'm not preaching. I'm actually really happy because when he preaches, he helps me see things that I didn't see before. And I always learn so much and grow as a result. And I hope it's the same way for you as well and for everyone at Grace. It's a wonderful gift that God gives us to be able to hear his word proclaimed from so many different mouths, so many different voices testifying to the truth of Scripture. Finally, since we talked about dinosaurs a few weeks ago in The Big Question, Levi wants to pick my brain about dinosaurs. He asks, what is your favorite dinosaur? This is a tough question, Levi, because there are so many good dinosaurs to choose from. Now, I like how the Tyrannosaurus Rex has such tiny arms. I think that's pretty cute. And I've also always loved uh, the Brontosaurus for having such a super long neck. And I like pterodactyls a lot, uh, not only because they can fly and make this cool noise when they squawk, but also because their name starts with a P, but it sounds like a T, which I think is neat. But none of these are my favorite dinosaur. For as long as I can remember, when I was a very young boy, when I first started learning about dinosaurs, there has always been one dinosaur that I thought was better than all the others, my absolute favorite, and that is the Triceratops. Triceratops doesn't just have one horn or two horns. He has three horns, and he has this cool upswept head that's kind of like a cobra. He's strong and stout, uh, and I don't think any of the other dinosaurs, even a Tyrannosaurus rex, would want to fight him because if Triceratops rams you, you get stabbed three times all at once. But the funny thing is, uh, the Triceratops was probably a vegetarian and one of the nicest dinosaurs that you'd ever meet. So the Triceratops has always been my favorite dinosaur. And now my question for you is, what is your favorite Well, that's all for now. Thanks for listening to The Big Question. Until next time, remember, if we're going to find the answers, then we have to ask the questions. So never be afraid to ask and never be satisfied with easy answers. The truth will always stand up to scrutiny. 
So until next time, keep asking the big questions.